I think Paul has something for us to really consider this morning because there was a motivation for why he even wrote the letter. My question for you and I as we consider it, we have been diligent for the last 16, 17 months to go through this together. And if we were to, as, as easy it might be, to get to the end of chapter 14 and maybe even the end of chapter or chapter 15, verse 13, just to stop there and not go any further. If we were to do that, we would miss the reason why Paul wrote the letter itself. Paul was a church planner, and so he wrote the letter of Romans. What does he want? He wants something. We call it in the uh, church planning world, the big ask. When you sit down with an individual and after pouring out your heart what you hope God might do for a church plant, eventually in the conversation, the big ask comes out. We need your money. Often I even found myself, as we come to this text, it was really helpful for me. I wish I had learned it day one of church planting. I've always struggled with how to talk about money. I'm going to be very candid with you today. We're going to talk about money. It's interesting when we talk about the church, there's a lot of things the pastor feels free to talk about. Your sin. How you best, we all might exercise marriage and walk in humility and service towards one another. Leadership has the right to talk about and encourage and parenting. You have the right to encourage how you all, one another, to relate to one another and be devoted towards one another. We even get to, as we saw in Romans chapter 14, how we ought to bear one another's opinions. It's an interesting thing in which pastors feel free, leadership feel free to talk about some things, but when it comes to money, I imagine even as I were talking with some before, what you're going to be talking about Sunday, and I say, money, daylight savings time coming up as well, that might be an option to pass. Paul was a church planner, so he wrote Romans with a purpose. I need you to hear these words. As we come to realize this, this, this whole letter is a masterpiece. And he wrote this letter to a group of Christians he has never yet met. Let me remind you. He wrote the letter to remind them, the church in Rome, of his Christ-appointed authority. First verse in the whole letter, Romans 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Who am I? Sent aside, appointed by Christ for this aim, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God. Even in our reading this morning, he makes mention of that authority once again. He does it in Romans 12, but in before he sets out to ask the big ask, he says it again in verse 16. He says, to be, he was to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a, a, a priest of the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Uh, here in the Romans elsewhere, Paul writes humbly acknowledging who he is. He's not just this random guy hoping 
to get their approval. One, he writes the letter, one, to stress who he is. And because he knows who he is, he, he writes with a sense of boldness, right? Look at this. You can see this in verse 14. He admits this. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced. He knows that the things that he's wrote about, written about are true and can be found in the church of Rome. But he writes these things, convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another or to instruct, instruct one another. But I have written very boldly. He knows at times he's been very blunt. Quack, in fact, quite um, bold. But I have written very boldly to you on some point, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given from me. He wrote the letter to the, to, to the church in Rome primarily because he wanted to remind them who he was, one who carried authority, apostolic authority. Two, he wrote them with this hope that he might remind them of his calling. He puts these words right before us again. In Romans 15, we could go to Romans 9 and look at his conversion where God set him aside and appointing him as a, the, the one to be sent out to the Gentiles. But here in Romans, he again affirms why he came. In verse 16, he was appointed by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus, specifically to the Gentiles. Now, why would the church in Rome want to know this? They make up a large group of Gentiles. And God has sent him out to be one who reaches the Gentiles, ministering as a priest of the gospel of God, so that, it, it may, that my offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Verse 17. He's convinced of his calling. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in the things performed or pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything. He even acknowledged that in the midst of his calling, in the midst of his position as an apostle, anything that has actually happened in his life as he's gone out with the ministry of the gospel hasn't been his fruit. It's been God's fruit who has produced it. Let's see this in this verse. I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Man, we all know this to be true. We have the ability to carry the truths of the gospel to those whom we love. But that which is able to transform the heart of a man or a woman is not man's word, but the power of God. And Paul says, I've been sent to the Gentiles, and by the grace of God I have nothing to boast of, but the power of God which has made them Gentiles, those far from God, those who receive it in word, in mind they believe, and now are doing the works of the gospel. And you can see the range of this impact in Paul's life, and he presents them this reality before the church in Rome. The power of signs and wonders, and the power of the Spirit. You could start at Jerusalem and go all the way to Ilkirikium. You just say it boldly and you get it right. Illyricum. <laughs> you can see his impact all the way from Jerusalem to modern Italy. God's grace and power has been working through Paul. 
So he, he wrote the letter to affirm his apostolic position, to affirm his calling. He puts before them his uh, success and his desire. His desire is, is that he preached the gospel not where Christ is already known. Look at this in verse 20. He, he has a, a specific aim as this called by God to, to reach the Gentiles. He knows the impact of the local church. That he, he desires to see churches exist where churches aren't. And so I aspire to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I will not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. He, he wrote, Paul was a church planner, so he wrote the, the letter of Romans. And so he strives to remind them who he is. I'm an apostle. Two, I've been called. You can see the impact of God's ministry through me. Three, he wants to show them what he preaches. This is significant. He wrote the letter of Romans to show them what he aspires to preach to Gentiles. This makes up the majority of the letter of Romans. This is why he wrote in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek to whom I have been sent. And from that verse 16 and 17, he goes on to labor on and on and on what this gospel presentation looks like as he preaches to God, Gentiles. Several times, it's a couple times in the letter of Romans, Paul does something, and I didn't catch it till just this week. Like, there's a couple times where Paul actually says, it's my gospel. One we'll look at here in two weeks. Romans 16, verse 25, you'll see this. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. Paul wrote the letter of Romans to show his theology and what he believed, which is not so much different for many of you. I have been told time and time again, I ask often the question, how did you hear about Reliance? Why did you show up? Time and time again, I hear, well, we went online and we looked at your doctrinal statement. Why would you do that? Because if you're going to invest your time, resources, with the people, you want to know what they believe. Do you know the number one thing that people will look on a website the first place they go when considering a church, you know where they go? The doctrinal statement. You know where they go next? Leadership. They want to know who's the, who are the leaders in this church, where do, they go, where do they study, who's affirmed them. And this is exactly what Paul has done with the letter of Romans. I'm an apostle. Called by God to be sent to the Gentiles. Here's my gospel in which I aspire to preach to Gentiles. Paul was a church planner, so he wrote the letter of Romans. Why? He wants their money. And he wants them to recognize, hey, 
man, I remember this. Oh, it gives me bumps on my arms. It's just an awkward thing. Hey, we need you to support a church plant that doesn't exist. There's nobody there except for me and Adam. We have a kids ministry, but it's our kids. Oh, it's going to be great. Where do you meet? In a coffee shop. Man, I remember trying to buy a house. Oh, you're a pastor of a church. Where do you meet? In a coffee shop. How many people? Me and another family. Where's this money coming in? The support? You, do, it, people. <laughs> do they come? No. Paul wants the church in Rome to know him. And not only that, he wants them to see that God has been using him. He wants them to be excited to invest what God has given them in his kingdom through Paul. For while he strives to show his audience, the church in Rome, that he's been called as an apostle, that he has been one who aspires to preach what we've come to learn in these 15 chapters, he wants to show them also who he knows. Look at this next week. But you, you start chapter 16, you start reading, he starts throwing names out. Hey, say hi to Pris- Priscilla Aquila. Say hi to uh, Mary Oh, how about Rufus? Say hi to him. He's a choice man of the Lord. Why does he do that? You know why he would do this. Because through through relationships, you have affirmation. Paul is striving to get his audience to be excited about what God has called him to do. So that he writes, here it is, the big ask in verse 24. This is where I want to stand for a little bit in our time this morning. Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you. It's very clever wording. The word there is help. Well, help, what does that mean? Specifically, Paul does this elsewhere. He does this everywhere. He does this at the church, the Corinth. He does this at Titus. He does this with uh, uh, here in Romans. Um, he wants specifically their money, their support, supplies, and potentially people. I need your help. It says this in uh, 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. In this confidence I intend at first to come to you, so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you, by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. How does he get the plan to get to Judea? Support. Titus 3.13. Diligently, as Titus, Paul tells Titus, help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that they, nothing is lacking from them. Make sure that they're cared for, supported, Again, here in Romans 15, verse 25, um, he's received funds, and now he's going down to Jerusalem with those funds, take down to Jerusalem, serving the saints who have given money to them. Uh, 15, 26, let me read this. 
Um, it's interesting, when he asks the big, the big ask, um, he presents before the, the readers a group of Gentiles who have been so transformed by the gospel how right giving looks like. What happens here? Verse 26. For in Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They hear of a need. And this is where historically I've hoped reliance would be. Right? Like you've heard the verse, be a cheerful giver. Right? Like often I hope, and that's my wish, that as we grow within the knowledge of the gospel, that our giving comes out of the heart of joyfulness, desire. You see, it, Paul says it twice. Verse 26, they were pleased to make a contribution. Verse 27, yes, they were pleased to do so. But Paul doesn't end there, does he? He's going to help us define what is a giver. A giver is one who is joyful to do so. But look at how he defines this Gentile who's been transformed by the gospel. Remind you, Paul's ministry, because he's a church planner, he's been sent by, by support, financial support, throughout his ministry. As a result, it's transformed the lives of Gentiles. And these Gentiles have been so transformed. Look what they're doing. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they were indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Interesting. Like, I, if I lean anywhere, I mean, I could probably talk about the number of the, about five, four or five times the times that I've talked about money here at Reliance Fellowship in the last eight years. And this is one area that I think I've, I've been challenged by. Like, I want us to be a, a, giving with a cheerful heart. But Paul presented us before us another attitude, which a giver does. He's indebted. The term there is morally obligated. Paul has within his theology this idea. If you have spiritually been impacted by a group of people, it's not unreasonable to expect financial response towards that spiritual investment. This is not foreign ideas for us. Um, I love hazelnut lattes. I do, especially on cold mornings. And when I go to the coffee shop to get my hot hazelnut latte, I go out of pleasure for what it might provide me. But in the, in the same moment, I don't expect the barista to make my hazelnut latte without some resources. And so I am indebted to buy that which I enjoy. Some of you don't like coffee, so you don't care about that. Some of you like steak, and you really like the great steakhouses. And it's your great pleasure when you go to the, the waiter comes to you, you say, I want that steak, and, because you know what pleasure it might produce for you. And you don't care how much it costs. And out of moral obligation, what do you do? 
you pay for it. The church is different. We're not a restaurant. We're not a coffee shop. Right? Yes, right. In fact, most of the time, you, we all spiritually get... Uh, uh, we spiritually are encouraged before we even decide to give. And Paul's saying this Gentile group of people have been the recipients of the generosity once that once came out of Jerusalem. When they heard about their financial means, they were morally obligated to respond out of pleasure and duty. And when it comes to the church historically, I was the guy that says, don't talk about money. Because I hear, like, yeah, guys, gas prices are going up. But Paul is teaching us something. If you have been spiritually encouraged, Paul is teaching and he will teach elsewhere that it is not unreasonable to respond with financial support for that ongoing encouragement. Paul was a church planter, so he wrote the letter of Romans to reach a group of Gentiles who had not the benefit of the local church. And he asks for money because he knows they're indebted to do so, for they were the recipients of that generosity elsewhere. That he can say, it's time to show up. So when I come to you in Spain, <laughs> like he waits. He's pretty smart. He waits 15 chapters before he goes for their wallet. <laughs> but why would you want to support this guy? Called by God, the apostle. Everywhere he goes, from Jerusalem to Italy, what does he have? Success. In fact, you can go, go to the churches in chapter 16. Go ask them. Is he, is he one worthy to invest in? Is he of good character? So that when he gets there, he anticipates no hindrance from continuing his ministry. And so I've come to realize, I think, just I wish that somebody would have taught me that in church planning. Because I always felt like money is like personal. But why is it that I don't feel... Guilty for talking about our sin. Right? Which brings me to my second point. Out of pleasure and obligation. We're going to come back to this chapter here in a couple weeks. I'm going to have Adam address some things here too. Um, Not the money piece. I get this. Um, But I do want to speak a little bit more candidly. Uh, I do think my hope here in this section, if, if you're a how do I want to say this? If you're a, a guest here at Reliance Fellowship, I think it'd be wise for me to say, uh, if you're watching, and, and, and don't receive my words about what I'm about to say as for you. My words about what I'm about to say are for those who have committed to these people and to this ministry. However, if you're a guest, these words are still for you. That wherever you might go and find yourself being spiritually fed, God, as Paul teaches elsewhere repeatedly, it is a reasonable expectation that as 
a people pour, on, pour into you for spiritual growth, it is a reasonable expectation to continue in supporting that which moves you forward in Christ. And because we're not just people who suck from one another. We're not uh, leeches. We contribute out of uh, joy. We don't want to make the church sound like a latte. It's so much more than that. Right? Or steak. Many of you guys, you may not be aware how much our fellowship impacts your family. You just, we just take it for granted. Or just the regular time of singing together, how much that impacts um, your spiritual walk with Christ. That we need to be reminded of these things. So I say these things just as Paul said. Romans 15, 15, I write, I have written very boldly to you. I'm, I'm going to be very candid. So as to remind you again. Um, you know how Reliance Fellowship started? Some people might say, well, a couple pastors decided to go respond to the call of God. That's 10% of the story. Um, we had to do what Paul did. We had to raise prayer support, financial support. We had to get an army so I asked our treasurer, or Dave, one of the elders, to give me a report. How much money did we receive in the last eight years from outside support? Now, this is not to say well, how much we've committed to this, but you've got to get the ball rolling. There was nine ministries that decided in our early days to contribute to what we wanted to do here at Reliance. Grace Bible Church. Dallas, Texas. The Northwest Baptist Convention decided to support me, helped with my monthly payments. New Life Fellowship, our, my wife and I's sending church in Arlington, Texas. South Point Church in Abilene, Texas. An EFCA church of Eaton, both Kim and Adam and Greg served and ministered. Grace and truth up the hill. It bought a lot of your chairs that you sit in. The Columbian, Bas the Columbian Basin Baptist Association has supported us over the years. West Side, just over the, the freeway over there, has supported us. And a ministry before it closed its doors gave us a large sum of resources called Portico. And between all those churches, the gifts ranged from $1,000 to $7,000. Seventy, $70,000. $7,000 is not very, not very impressive. $70,000. I want to give a highlight to one ministry, Grace Bible Church. They paid off their building. Big building, right? And they said, what we're going to do is take the funds that we would normally pay towards our facilities and start investing those funds for gospel kingdom work. That's cool. Super excited. You know who would want to write to that church? Paul. I'm serious. Why? 
They have the resources to continue ministering and spreading the gospel. And it's available for them. And there's the heart and the attitude of pleasure and duty. For they know that they have not come to the point where they are as a result of their own deeds by the power of God. But did you, what I found interesting, what, interesting when I took up all the, the nine ministries, did you know that that only counted about 31% of total giving over the last eight years, outside giving? It's only 31%. The other 69% was given by individual partners about 75 individual partners over the last eight years. Here's my point. Why even talk about this? Because I want us to be a joyful giving church, but I have to, because I haven't in the last eight years, try to build up the indebtedness. We have received $765,000 over the last eight years from outside giving. And the majority of that, 69%, were those of individuals who knew Adam and I, knew our doctrine, knew our hopes. And so they gave out of pleasure that we as a people might find spiritual, that we might be spiritually encouraged. And so they did it out of a sense of duty that it might take place. It's one of my deepest desires. That's, that's almost three quarters of a million. That, that's a lot of money. And I want there to be a sense of great pleasure for what God has done from the body of Christ who has done so for our spiritual advantage. But then to understand, I pray, out of indebtedness, to see what God might use us for in the future. Which leads me to my third point. I mean, how do you respond to a passage like this? When I, whenever I go to Spain, I hope to see you. I need some help. The example? Look at these Gentiles who've been transformed by the gospel. They, do, they give out a pleasure and they give out a sense of moral obligation. I guess the first thing would be, do you give? I had a hard time saying that earlier on. I don't know. Adam doesn't know. We don't know who gives. So I can say that in the sense of like, I don't know. <laughs> and I think it's helpful for as a pastor that I don't know. Um, plus, I don't like looking at money. I'm not very good at it. Um, my wife is wonderful. She handles that for our family. Um, but I do think that many of us here have been spiritually encouraged by one another. And Paul would say, like he would say elsewhere, and for the sake of time, I can't. Go look at the other passages. It's reasonable. It's a reasonable expectation that you invest in your spiritual walk through these people. That's what I'll say about I want a church plant. I want a church plant. And at the position we are financially right now, we can't. 
two things that are going to hinder us from being able to church plant. And the way that we want a church plant is never like the way that Adam and I had to do it. We want to send a church, which is going to require about 30 tithe units, that they can be independent as a fully functioning church and be able to do the ministry without the fear of the, the sacrifice financially which we're required to do so. Seen it being done in the South. Paul is an expression of it as well, and it works. Praise God that Adam and I were both able to work full-time. Well, not initially. Eventually we brought him on full-time. But it frees us able, to, it frees up leadership to serve its community. And I want a church plant. And so the reality is, is that the two things that are going to hinder us from being able to church plant, one is leadership. We have to have leadership in order to have a church plant. We need elders. We need committed team members. Two, money. Paul was called to go to unreached people. America, we have a wonderful privilege that there are churches throughout even the city. And I find myself interesting, like, I have to spend a lot of, t- a lot of time just ex- arguing with people with the fact that we need more churches. I mean, one of the reasons why we have mere ministry come here this morning, imagine you've had to argue quite a bit on why your ministry needs to exist. Like, we don't realize the impact of the local church. The more local churches you have, the greater impact of the gospel you have. And we're not talking about coliseums. We're talking about people who gather together, who know one another, who live according to the gospel, encourage the gospel, support one another through their resources, and express their faith to the community. I want to pay off this building. Okay, not me. We. I want to do what Grace Bible did. I want to be able to pay off this building, and I want to say the money that we would normally commit towards the purchase of this land is going towards kingdom work. And I guarantee you who's going to come and talk to us. The local ministries in this community that want more, that need more. And we're eight years in, right? So in some ways we can say, man, God's been great. He has been incredibly generous to us. And that's what I place before you. How has Reliance been here? Through God's army. He called up two families to church plant. He supported them with nine ministries. He gave 75 individuals to give in its early beginnings. God literally has given us this building and the land around it. Why in the world would you not want to invest in it? We had more people baptized last year than we have ever had as a church. Like, how much more do I want to put up before us? That we can actually physically see the hand of God working in this place. And you have all been spiritually benefited from this, the love that you express towards one another. And through its leadership, I pray, which encourages you to go forth. I think it is reasonable to ask for your financial support so that we can continue it. Because I would love to send more missionaries and support them. I would love to send more local ministries or resources. And that's one way we can do that. The other way that Paul puts before us too as well. Individuals, you can do it too. 
Go up and beyond your tithe and give. All right. I think I've been candid enough. God doesn't need our money. He uses it. He'll provide for our church ministry needs and costs in crazy, unique ways, which he has in the past. But he does want his people to give out a pleasure and a sense of indebtedness. I would read Romans chapter 16, verse 27, and ask the simple question, is this me? Am I doing that? And some of you may walk out those doors and try to forget this sermon as quick as possible. Don't do that. Don't. May we be a people who enjoy giving and respond out of the moral obligation for what God has set us up to do. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would raise up more leaders in our church. We are thankful for the ministry of Paul and the sacrifice that he had given for the sake of the gospel. So often he had to spend time trying to convince people that investing in what you had called him to do was worth it. Lord, in the same way we ask that for our own ministry. But not only for our own ministry, we even have mere ministries here this morning. Lord, you have been faithful to both. Praise God that you have given us this community, a house to take care of the sexually abused, to bring them in right relationship with you on a new foundation. We are excited about that. For we know some of us, our own selves, we're stuck in sin. We have felt the weight of it. But by your grace, through your people, you have saved us through Christ Jesus. Through a people which said, God loves you desires to have a relationship with you. That, that the power of God can transform people, whether it be in a safety house or whether through the, be the regular practice of, of a church. Lord, I pray wherever we're at, Lord, it'd be easy not even to ask ourselves how to respond to this in this way, Lord. And I have been blunt. But I think it's good just, just to ask and remind ourselves and ask ourselves of these things. Lord, make our hearts a heart that wants to give out of pleasure, but then also recognizing the indebtedness which you have provided through these ministries for our benefit, Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.